Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Uh, one of our co-authors is on his way, so he'll be joining us as the uh, event goes along. The way that we think about money markets and sovereignty, the title of the book we're featuring today is often ahistorical and misinformed. The idea and phenomenon of globalization are are not recent uh, uh, are not just recent characteristic only of the last thirty years or even of uh, the last uh, of a hundred years ago. It is something that's been happening at different times and to different extents since ancient history. The idea of sovereignty is a modern and very recent uh, phenomenon, especially as it is practiced today. Uh, sovereignty is not as globalization critics often portray it to be, a natural and old ordering of human affairs uh, that is somehow being lost. The idea of money as the natural monopoly product of governments and their function to provide uh, public goods is also recent. People have been using money for thousands of years, and that arose spontaneously and independent of government as... Uh, free and voluntary interactions among people uh, and individuals, both at the local and at the global levels. The way these three ideas, money, markets, and sovereignty, are reflected in policy in the real world is uh, strongly shaping the current era of globalization. According to the authors Ben Steele and Manuel Heinz, uh, this era of globalization is unique and precarious uh, precisely because liberal trade coexists with an extreme form of monetary nationalism, and nationalism and global liberalism don't mix. Uh, the authors believe that it is this disconnect, uh, the current state of monetary affairs, that is the biggest threat uh, to globalization. The outbreak of the global financial crisis lends credibility to the argument that is being made in the book and it makes the author's observations all that more timely. Uh, indeed, the, the main concern around the world today is what will replace the dollar as the global uh, uh, currency re reserve. These are not merely academic concerns, uh, nor, as it turns out, are they issues that are being dealt with uh, for the first time. One of the strengths of this book is that it gives a, a good economic and intellectual history uh, going back thousands of years of the big issues uh, that the book tackles, uh, suggested by its title, and includes a very compelling chapter on the history of law and globalism that I recommend. This is a, uh, a very well-written and, I think, an extremely important book. So I'm very pleased to be able to introduce our, our first speaker today, and hopefully we'll introduce later our second speaker. Uh, ben Steele is a senior fellow at the, and the Director of International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's also the founding editor of the journal International Finance, and he is the co-author of Financial Statecraft, also published by Yale University Press. And uh, please help me welcome back to the Cato Institute, Ben Steele.
Thank you, Ian, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for, for coming out uh, during your, your lunch break. Hopefully, Manuel will be uh, here shortly, and so we'll be able to maintain our division of responsibility. Uh, I was going to talk first about um, some of the, the big ideas that um, uh, drove us to, to write the book, and then Manuel's going to focus on some of the uh, very important contemporary concerns about the future of the dollar and the international monetary system and where the ideas that we developed in the book Sort of fit in. Um, the idea of writing this book and of writing it with Manuel actually came to me while I was writing my last uh, book, which was on the role of financial markets in U.S. foreign policy. While I was uh, writing it, there was a Treasury uh, uh, undersecretary, former Treasury undersecretary, who was chairing my study group, and he said, you know, you really ought to meet um, this fellow named Manuel Hines, he's a former Salvadoran finance minister. He said, of any two people I know in the world, you two think the most alike. And he introduced us to each other. We became uh, great friends. Uh, Manuel came to the council for a year, wrote his own book, and then we decided to, uh, to write one together. Um, uh, the, while I was writing that uh, last book on the role of financial markets in U.S. foreign policy, I became fascinated with bigger questions about the, the nature of the relationship between money and the state and how that developed I was fascinated with the idea of, of, of how that developed over time and changed over time and how that influences how we think about um, uh, globalization today. Uh, so again, I want to talk about some of the big themes that, that drove the book. Um, uh, we're very concerned with um, how uh, ideas about globalization um, have been shaped and how they relate to um, the, the history of, of how money developed and how things like law developed. In other words, things that we consider today to be naturally the prerogative of the state, issuing the money that everybody uses in the country, even creating laws. Uh, back in the um, uh, ancient world, we talk a lot about the uh, ancient Hellenistic world, this would have been a very foreign concept. Um, rulers naturally came to understand that there would be great benefits from coming to monopolize uh, money. And in fact, um, uh, the ancient Lydian tyrants actually came to power initially by being businessmen who understood uh, the profits that could be made by, by taking over the, the process of coining. Um, and they came to power on that basis. But rulers... Aspiring rulers never actually succeeded in convincing people that once they came to power, they could create law, um, that they could determine how people interacted with each other on the basis of, of principles of, of just conduct. And in fact, um, successful rulers always um, achieved their power by persuading the people that they would be the ones best able to enforce the law. We spend a lot of time in the book um, talking about how essential uh, the development of commerce was to the very idea of law. Um, the notion that you needed sort of principles of just conduct between uh, individuals in order to facilitate, facilitate the, the uh, emergence of commerce was extremely important uh, throughout uh, Roman history, very important in the development of, of Roman law and eventually common law. Um, we talk a lot in the book about the development of the so-called lex mercatoria, the uh, law's merchant, uh, which really became the foundation of contract law 
in the 12th century. This is even before the consolidation of, of states. It eventually was absorbed into um, uh, uh, English common law and is, in fact, the, the, the very basis of, of things like the U.S. Uniform Commercial Code um, today. So this notion that it's how people form their expectations on the ground on the basis of repeated interactions with each other, that's what determines what the law must be. That is, the law does not come um, uh, from above, it comes from below, and the role of a good judge is to determine on the basis of what reasonable expectations would have been built up among people over time um, what the law uh, must be. In terms of the uh, development of um, uh, money, um, we uh, talk uh, quite a bit in, in the book about uh, the, the notion of, of globalization today, that there's, there's something fundamentally uh, flawed about it, uh, particularly because of uh, the emergence every five years or so of major uh, currency crises. And we have a lot of sympathy with, with that view because if you look at even uh, good uh, fundamentally sound free market economists, they have trouble with, with this idea. How do we account for the fact that every five years or so there's a major currency crisis and we're unable to develop any coherent uh, response to it? Well, we point out that globalization today is historically exceptionally unusual. It's not like earlier periods of globalization. We emphasize in the book that if you look back in earlier, at earlier periods of globalization, particularly the late 19th century, what you always saw was that uh, ideas of, of free trade went side by side with the idea of, of a universal monetary standard. So it's not coincidental that in the late 19th century, as uh, countries started to coalesce around the idea that free trade might be mutually beneficial, they also coalesced on the idea that we, we needed a, a universal monetary standard in order to facilitate this. That was the uh, uh, classical gold standard. On the other hand, if you look back through history and you um, examine periods of protectionism, we point to the 18th century, when ideas of mercantilism uh, were at the forefront, those always went side by side with the idea of monetary nationalism, that it was the ruler's prerogative to determine what money should be, how it should be valued, what should be um, uh, um, uh, considered money within uh, the borders. And, of course, you did have money ba moving back and forth uh, among borders, but you basically had floating exchange rates because of the fact that rulers were continually debasing their money, and therefore it fluctuated uh, uh, radically in, in value as it moved across borders. But here we are uh, today in the early 21st century when you have, on the one, one hand, the most liberal trade and investment regime, global trade and investment regime we've ever had, but side by side with the most extreme doctrine of monetary nationalism that governments have ever contrived throughout history. We've never been in a period uh, of history like this one since 1971, where all the uh, currencies uh, around the world are tied to nothing of intrinsic value. They're simply conjured by governments as a, as a manifestation of monetary sovereignty. So this is exceptionally unusual to have this situation side by side of, of this unprecedentedly liberal global trade regime with this extreme doctrine of monetary nationalism. 
And it wouldn't have been surprising to economists in the 1930s of the right or the left, of the free market variety or the uh, anti-market variety, that we're having problems today accommodating it. Uh, we talk in the, the, the book about the, the views of um, uh, Friedrich Hayek on the one hand and Karl Polanyi on the other, both of whom considered it absolutely obvious that in order to have uh, free trade and, and, and uh, uh, safe global capital flows, you need to, needed to have a universal monetary standard, which in fact both of them agreed was gold. Of course, Hayek had sympathy with the liberal international trade order and Karl Polanyi had a lot less sympathy with it um, but they both agreed that that was absolutely necessary to, to free trade. And many economists, like uh, uh, Hayek, like uh, the uh, uh, French central banker Charles Ries, um agreed that once uh, uh, we lost this idea of a universal monetary standard and cur- national currencies routinely fluctuated against each other, that capital flows, which in the late 19th century had been extremely stabilizing, they, act, they acted as an equilibrating mechanism to bring about the quick end of, of, of crises, would actually become massively destabilizing because every time you would have any sort of banking crisis, the reaction of investors both foreign and domestic, would be to sell the currency en masse because they, they wouldn't believe that the old parities would be restored. They would naturally uh, assume that things were going to, 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 to get worse. So what we're experiencing today, I would argue, is not actually surprising at all. It's something that was anticipated by economists of the right and left in, in the 1930s, and it's not a fundamental flaw with the idea of globalization, the idea that we should... Um, have a, a liberal international uh, trade and investment regime, but it's a, a, a flaw in the, the uh, a system of monetary nationalism that we're uh, currently pursuing. Now, perhaps, Ian, you'd like to perhaps start some of the discussion before Manuel arrives. Would that be the most sure. sensible way to... Sure. Why don't, why don't we go ahead and, and uh, as Manuel arrives, he'll be here in just a few minutes uh, if you want to. Uh, raise some questions, feel free to do so. Uh, however, uh, I would ask that if you have a question, uh, raise your hand and wait for the microphone and then uh, identify yourself and your affiliation. So uh, there's a question right here. Hi, I'm, I'm James Barcy with freemarketeros.com. Just talking about the Equ- Ecuador, Rafael Correa's uh, toying with the idea of uh, returning to a national currency whether it be a new Sucre or a Condor, uh, what would be your thoughts on um, sort of departing from the use of the U.S. dollar? A lot of people predict disaster, so I sort of understand where you might be coming from, but I'd like to know what you think about that. Yeah, it's quite interesting that uh, at the beginning of Correa's um, uh, first election bid, uh, it was actually central to his uh, plank that the country would be de-dollarized. Uh, and that didn't uh, play well in the opinion polls at all in Ecuador. Um, that was one part of, of his platform that was not popular at all. And, in fact, he ran away from it very quickly. And in his first term, he actually pledged to make uh, constitutional reforms to uh, enshrine dollarization uh, rather than to pursue his uh, original idea of, of de-dollarizing the country. Now, an environment in which it appears that people globally may be losing faith in the dollar. 
I refer in, in particular to the fascinating uh, statement by the governor of the Bank of, of China, uh, Joe, in, in March about the possibility of replacing the dollar with, with uh, uh, something else. In his case, he thought it would be uh, an SDR produced by the IMF. I uh, don't think that's a particularly sound idea, but the, it, 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 it indicated the level of concern that's developed about the future of the dollar. There may be considerably more scope uh, for someone like uh, uh, Korea to argue that something other than dollarization um, uh, would be a, a, a appropriate and might actually be able to convince uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the population that there's a, a, a sounder base for taking the economy forward. But thus far, dollarization has actually been exceptionally uh, um, uh, successful for uh, Ecuador. Um, Ecuador's had uh, among the, the lowest levels of inflation and uh, interest rates in Latin America, despite the fact that the country's been in almost uh, continuous uh, political turmoil since it dollarized in 2000. Uh, Manuel's obviously better situated to talk about El Salvador. Manuel was one of the driving intellectual forces behind uh, dollarization in El Salvador. But it's interesting to note that El Salvador dollarized a year after Ecuador under totally different circumstances. Um, the political and economic situation in El Salvador was very stable. And in fact, the idea behind dollarization in El Salvador was quite different. It was not to rectify a crisis, but it was uh, to ensure that they could get the most possible benefit out of their commitment to running a sound economy. They figured, look, the currency has been very stable over a, a long period of time, but we're, we're suffering an interest rate um, uh, premium, and we risk the, the possibility of a collapse of confidence uh, in, the, in the future if we don't tie ourselves to the mast and say, you know, this, this is um, a clearly... Um, the, the, the way we've determined that we want the economy to run on the basis of sound money, and given that El, El Salvador's economy is deeply linked with that of the United States, about uh, 85% of trade is with the United States, it made uh, great sense for them to import U.S. Uh, monetary policy um, uh, directly. Uh, interestingly enough, I was visited uh, yesterday by a former economy minister of um, an Eastern European country, uh, where they're apparently debating very seriously now the idea of uh, dollarizing, and that's seen as potentially being a, a bulwark against uh, Russian expansion uh, into the region. In other words, to ensure foreign investors that they are absolutely uh, determined uh, to become uh, part of the West and to integrate with the, the global economy. I would add, too, that uh, dollarization continues to be popular in Ecuador, where there is a law uh, that is being enforced currently against people uh, spreading rumors about devaluation in the country. And a prominent uh, columnist and former congressman in the past couple of months wrote a column suggesting that the president is planning on de-dollarizing the country and he was promptly... Uh, he had to promptly go into hiding because the government issued an arrest warrant against him, and uh, uh, he's still, as I understand it, in, in hiding, and the rest of the press is silent on the issue. Uh, so that, I think, is a testament to the popularity of dollarization. We'll take a question in the front. Norman Bailey, Institute for, of World Politics. Um, 
I haven't read the book, obviously, but I assume in your historical survey you do point out that from the time of the Roman Empire, there was always an international trading currency, uh, the Roman and then the Byzantine and then the Venetian and then the Spanish and eventually the pound sterling. In other words, although there are all kinds of local currencies and national currencies and so on and so forth, there was always an international trading currency. That's right. Um, and we, we do emphasize that throughout the book, both in terms of the history of the development of money um, and in terms of uh, uh, more contemporary thought and economic theory. For example, Manuel and I spend quite a bit of time in the book deconstructing the ideas behind so-called optimum currency area theory which um, remarkably uh, takes it as given that there will be no such international uh, vehicle currency, that uh, each, each country can uh, so, sort of hive itself <coughs> off from the international uh, uh, marketplace and operate a, a liberalized trade and investment regime, but without any uh, common international monetary vehicle at, at, at all. We've never seen anything like that. Uh, throughout um, human history. And uh, to, to use OCA theory as a basis to defend national currencies, we find rather perverse. Why don't we move on uh, with the program, and let me introduce uh, the famous Manuel Hines. Uh, we're happy could can join us. Uh, Manuel Hines was the former Minister of Finance of El Salvador on two separate occasions, and uh, he was one of the main architects of the country's dollarization. But he was also one of the main architects of uh, many of the very far-reaching and important uh, market reforms that have made El Salvador an emerging success story in Latin America. And indeed, one of the papers that we uh, have uh, available outside of the auditorium uh, uh, describes how El Salvador... Uh, after Chile in the region is probably the, the one country that has most successfully implemented a set of coherent market reforms in a fairly radical way and reaped the beneficial results in terms of growth and poverty reduction and uh, an increase, a vast increase in personal choice in El Salvador that really distinguishes it, that country from Central America and from much of the much of the region, so I'm pleased to introduce Manuel Hines, who has also been a, a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and an author of another book called Playing Monopoly with the Devil. Please help me welcome Manuel Hines. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to being with you. Let me tell you, I am a half an absent-minded genius. <laughs> I have the absent-mindedness, not the genius. Uh, I came all the way from El Salvador to be with you uh, right now, you know? And, uh, but I thought that it was tomorrow. So, to, <laughs> so I was just checking, you know, uh, the, in the computer, in the Internet, and I saw 19 April. And I thought, but this is 20th. They are wrong. You know, and then I called, and you know that's why I had to rush from the hotel here. And but I'm very happy to be with you. Uh, uh, talking about this uh, interesting book, which uh, we started uh, uh, writing with uh, uh, with Ben uh, way before you know all these things became very fashionable. You know, because the 
it, it, when we started, this was back in 2005. We started discussing this, 2005, 2006. <coughs> and uh, uh, the, the, this big crisis was still uh, well ahead in the future. I think that we suspected that something very wrong was going to happen. I think every, everybody, everybody thought that, you know, but we never thought that this was going to be so profound. And then we started, uh, Ben already talked to you about all the, we decided to discuss all how the evolution of ideas uh, about money, uh, market, and sovereignty uh, was coming from, you know, the old Greeks and uh, to the present. And also at the same time, we wanted to discuss how this, uh, since, at least since the time of the, of the gold standard, had evolved into this. Because our main idea, our main question was, what was the relationship between globalization and the monetary system that prevailed in the world? And we saw that there was this big distinction, uh, this contradiction between the two, uh, what we had before in times of, we had had globalizations before, but in all the times in which we had had globalizations, we had a global monetary system, and now we didn't have a monetary system at all. Uh, and then we started looking into, into uh, what is going on in the world in the different kinds of countries. You know, how is this affecting the developing countries and how is this affecting the developed countries and the overall system in the world? Uh, this contradiction between the a global system and the national currencies. And, you know, there is something very interesting about the globalization that we are living through in, in today, which is based on, on knowledge, uh, 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 the knowledge of economy. It is not globalization. It's not that imports and exports have increased in the world. It is the interconnection between the economies. You know, back in the uh, 19th century and, and most of the 20th century, the developing countries were not really integrated into the world trade except by producing commodities. You know, the developing countries produced commodities and then imported the industrial goods. The important thing about this, about this new globalization that we are living through, is that the, uh, uh, the IT, the uh, inter, uh, international telecommunications and transportation costs have come down so fast and have, you know, allowed uh, the management systems to be created around the world so that you can coordinate the production of one good that, you know, started in England and then part of it in California, another part in Australia, and then you put all this together in Indonesia and you sell it in Britain, let's say, as if you had the entire factory inside the same, uh, under the same roof. And this, you know, this is really what has integrated the developing countries into the production. Because part of the production of any good, part of the industrial process, it can be done in a completely different part of the world. So, you know, there is a new kind of competition in which each country competes for one part of the ladder of production throughout the world. Okay. And this, you know, this creates kind of a, a ladder, what I said, a, a ladder of value-added. You know, there is this specialization in which countries like the United States or Europe, where you have 
tremendous intellectual capacity, education, engineering abilities, and management abilities, it can concentrate on the higher value added of knowledge. And then, you know, other countries uh, are specializing in different levels of, co of, of knowledge production, of knowledge value added. And this, in this, this ladder, of course, if you really want to become uh, a developed country during the 21st century, you have to integrate into that ladder. And what are the obstacles for this? Of course, there are obstacles uh, because in many countries, in, in, in developing countries, they have protection, you know, they have all these kind of things. But in the last 20 years of the 20th century, this was progressively eliminated. And now, you know, the big obstacle is not that. The big obstacle is that each country has its own currency. And this, really, this is, a, 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 not many people realize this, but it is very easy to see what is the problem. If you have a global production system, you know, what is, who is allocating the resources around the world, the international financial system? And to be a part of this gigantic uh, machinery of allocation of resources, you have to pertain to the international financial system. And if you have a, a very weak, very small currency that is not recognized beyond your uh, borders, then you are not part of the international system of allocation of resources. So, and that is the big problem that the uh, developing countries face now. Now, the market has developed a solution to this. And what is the solution? The solution is what we call the, the uh, spontaneous dollarization. The problem is that if you are in Latin America, for example, and you are using pesos, normally the rate of interest in Latin America is about twice the rate of interest in the United States. It could be much more than that. In Brazil, lending rates are 53% in this moment, for example down from 65 or 80 percent uh, five or six years ago. So it is very difficult that you could really compete in the international market if you are in such a fragmented part. So that's the problem with the developing countries. The market has found a solution, which is the, the spontaneous dollarization, which is very dangerous, which is in each country, you know, the, the central bank has had to allow the uh, the people in, in the public in the country to deposit their money in dollars. Because if not, they would take the money to the United States or to some, some other place. So what you have is a system, a banking system, in which part of it is in dollars, part of it is in pesos, which, of course, you can see is a very combustible uh, uh, system. So this is a problem. The, the IMF is now recognizing it. It is trying to reduce spontaneous dollarization in the, other, in, the, in the countries. But this, in order to reduce spontaneous dollarization, what you have to do is you have to increase your interest rates so that people will deposit in pesos rather than in dollars. For that, you have to pay very high interest rates. And this is the, a problem in all uh, these countries. But now, in the developed countries, I don't have to tell you. You know, what is the problem of not having a real, true international currency that is not a, really, you know, the supply of it is not conditioned by political reasons inside one country. You know, we have a, 
since we don't have um, a global money, we have to use our money issued by one, cor by one country, which is the United States. But then the Federal Reserve, you know, has, doesn't have as the first priority to see what is going on in international, in the global necessities of money, but it is looking at the political situation in the United States and to be popular or to be the maestro or to be whatever, you know, the, this is inside the country. And this is for the same reason, you know, because we have a fiat money in the world and it is anybody's uh, criterion you know, that we use in order to determine what is going to be created. This is one way, you know. Another way could be to have an international currency. But then if you, which wouldn't be the, the dollar, but this is like, like uh, for example, the, the Chinese, uh, the president of the Chinese pre uh, Central Bank proposed uh, some time ago. But then who is going to determine this? We will have another politician saying, you know, we have to increase now the supply of money or not. Or we have a commodity currency like the gold. Uh, I don't know how long do I have. Uh, uh, we had the, the much maligned. A gold standard, you know, which was a true, it was the true international currency that we had in the world. This was in the, you know, for several centuries, but it was perfected into the 19th century. Uh, the late, uh, the, the real uh, gold standard was between 1880, 1870s, 1880s, 1914. And this has been terribly maligned, you know, because there are several things that are very easy, it is very easy to see, you know, this is a system in which uh, the supply of gold is not something that we can manage. And this is un unthinkable, you know, in, in, in our present time, that you are going to have a currency that can, you cannot determine how much you are going to print about it. And this was the big advantage of the gold standard, you know, that really the gold standard was determined outside the, the, uh, the thoughts of any person. It was really, you know, something that was determined by the market, by the price of the gold. And then, you know, in our book, we have uh, one chapter analyzing how good or how bad was the gold standard. And it actually, as many other books, you know, as in this, in this uh, uh, decade, there are many people who are rediscovering the gold standard and finding that the gold standard really functioned very well, you know. Number one, because it was an international system. You know, completely different from today, where we, as Ben was saying, we don't have an international currency. It was an international one. It was accepted everywhere. You know, it was determined by the market. It had very clear rules, and you know, the people, the central banks, participated in the gold standard not because the governments decided that this was the best way of organizing international trade. It was because international trade was organized, you know, in this way that the central banks and the governments had to recognize and said we are going to participate in this system. And if we adopt the gold standard, we will, you know, we will be better off. During those days, there was something which I would like just to mention, you know, uh, which is deflation, uh, which 
Dr. Bernanke and many other people, you, they say what we have to avoid is deflation. And this is something that happened during the gold standard because the gold standard really kept in the long term, kept the price level the same. But in the very short term, there were uh, fluctuations. And sometimes in the long term, there were fluctuations. You know, prices would go up, but then, you know, the gold standard had certain mechanisms through which prices had to go down again. So you had prices of a little inflation, a little deflation, and in the very long term, you had almost zero inflation. But then, for example, between 1870 and 1890, and almost reaching to to uh, uh, actually 1910, there was a long deflation in the world, you know, in which prices went down by 25%. And you, know, you will say this probably was the most horrible depression in the world. And actually, people called it uh, the, the Great Depression. This was the Great Depression because, but they were talking about the Great Depression of prices, not of production, because this was the, 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 the period in which Germany became industrialized. The United States became industrialized. You know, it's, uh, it, it is one of the most uh, uh, progressive periods in history. You know, and prices were going down. Deflation. There was a deflation. Okay. So this, you know, when you look at the, at the gold standard, you realize that there are many things that are, are myths about the gold standard, like saying, number one, you know, that it stopped uh, growth because of this, uh, uh, that it stopped growth because of the inelasticity of supply, you know, also, you know, that it created deflation and through that it created, you know, it led to, to uh, reductions in production. It was not like that. The problem was that it, you know, the system it had, you know, it hit the politicians. And there was a moment in when the politicians decided that they didn't want to follow the gold standard. They, didn't, they wanted to have their own monetary policy. They didn't want to be part of a global system. And then, you know, they created what is called the gold exchange system, you know, in which they started creating currency outside the the strict rules of the gold standard. And the contradiction started there. And then this contradiction, and we can discuss this uh, later in, in questions. It is, uh, we discuss this in the book. These contradictions between a system that did not, was not discretionary, you know, and the politicians that started using discretionary monetary policies started creating these conflicts, and they led to several crises and eventually to the Great Depression. Then, you know, after that, the Bretton Woods system was created, which, again, was a, a hybrid between the, the, the... It was still based on gold, but it gave the countries certain uh, discretion to create money, and they started creating money, and they created, again, the problem. And now we reach the, uh, our system, which uh, started when Nixon uh, demonetized the gold in 1970, 71. And then, you know, we were in Nirvana, supposedly. 
because we had our free floating currencies. Each country could decide, you know, how to uh, create the money. Uh, and if, the, if they, were, they were creating too much money, the currency would depreciate, the other would appreciate, everything would be very nice. But then, you know, again, we hit again the same problem that we had. Number one, we, didn't, we don't have an international currency. We use the dollar, and the dollar had its, the big privilege. You know, what the, uh, the big privilege is that people around the world think in dollars, not just in the United States, but also around the world. They think in dollars, and if the, the uh, Federal Reserve decides to lower the interest rates, people tended to reduce the interest rates, okay? And if the Federal Reserve increased interest rates, interest rates would increase until very recently. Until very recently, you have seen that sometimes the central bank here, the Federal Reserve, lowers the interest rates, and the interest rates in the market don't go up. It is because people are starting to doubt about the dollar, you know, and they are starting buying gold again, and they are starting, you know, and then the... They, are, they stopped, you know, passing through the dollars in, in the financial system. The, if you look at the currency created by the Federal Reserve, you see that, you know, through decades, it is something like this, and then suddenly it, it has a jump. In three months, more than, it, more than duplicated the creation of money here in this country, and still credit didn't go through to the people you know, to the main street, as they say. Uh, and then you start seeing that the, that the, the Federal Reserve, the, the ability of the Federal Reserve to create monetary policy is kind of skidding, you know. It is no longer what it used to be. And this is a danger that we post in our book. It was precisely, you know, that if the Federal Reserve abuses its power, People start, will stop believing in the dollar, and they will find something else. They will find a new currency, you know, which will be gold, or it will be the euro, or whatever, and that is going to be, you know, a real problem to the United States. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Uh, I do recommend also the chapter on on gold. It's a very uh, good summary of the history of the gold standard and what has come afterwards. Uh, we can take questions now. Again, if you have a question, again, wait for the microphone. Identify yourself and your affiliation. My name is Frank Lennox, and I am at Meridian International Center. Some time ago, I haven't heard about it too recently, but there was talk about the oil producers pricing oil not in dollars as they do now, but in other currencies, euro or, or a basket. What would be the pros and cons of their doing that, and what would be the implications if they priced oil in another denomination? Could you like to? No, go ahead. Well, uh, you know, this is we, we really have a, a, a discussion about this in, 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 in the or, or, or of a very related uh, issue here, you know, because the if you look at the at the um, countries producing oil, these are the perfect uh, countries for the for having their own currency according to the optimal currency area theory, you know, because. They have this 
they produce only one thing, okay, so they can adjust continuously to that. But really, you know, this is when you think of that, for the inside of the of the of the country, it is very bad, you know, because if let's say that you decide to have your own currency and that your currency will be always valued in oil, so it, it keeps the value of oil always. You know, it is one oily, always. Okay, then you know when the oil prices are going up, your currency and your savings in the banking system are going up, the value of your savings. But if it goes the other way around, if they go down, and you are living in that in that country, you would like to have if the price of oil is going down, so my salary is going down. I don't want also my savings going down. Okay, so for them, you know, to have their own currency would be very bad because it will accelerate. You know, it, it it would be impossible for them to to diversify their risks. Okay, that's on the side of the of the countries. On the side of uh, the rest of the of, of 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 the people, the thing is that nobody will take will take a currency issued, you know, by a country whose income goes up and down as fast as oil goes up and down in every other currency. You know, it is true that the, it, 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 the, the movements of the dollar in the, of the dollar prices have been very high, but also the euro. You know, the only currency in which the price of oil has not gone out and down so you know, dramatically is gold. But that poses the other problem, you know. <laughs> if you have gold, then you don't have Bernanke. We discuss in the book the fact that there's a symbiotic relationship between, on, on the one hand, um, the uh, foreign exchange reserves and the de- denomination of the foreign exchange reserves that the central banks choose to hold and uh, the denomination of international trade. So, for example, if China and other central banks decide for prudential portfolio management reasons to hold a higher percentage of euros, that obviously gives countries a greater incentive to trade in, in euros. If you're holding more of it, why not transact in it? Likewise, if more, more and more countries are transacting in, say, euros, that obviously gives an in- incentive for their central banks to accumulate more euros because that's what you need in order to interact with the rest of the world. So it's a self-reinforcing mechanism. Now, uh, if we were to see a movement like that, um, uh, we think the developments would be quite worrying, both politically and economically. Uh, let's imagine a scenario in which the, the euro became 50% or more of international uh, reserves. That would put enormous upward pressure on the euro. It would require eurozone countries to run continuous current account deficits in order to supply the world with the euros that it wants to transact and to save. Just like today, the United States is obliged to run massive continuous current account deficits if the rest of the world wants dollars. That's the way we, we supply it to them. Now, imagine what the reaction would be in, in Europe uh, if that were the case. Uh, producers would be lobbying furiously, both domestically and in Brussels, to bring the European Central Bank under some sort of of control because uh, this was squeezing their 
their, their profits. It was dampening economic growth. It was producing uh, un unemployment. It's worth asking whether uh, the European Central Bank as a political institution is uh, robust enough that it could possibly defend its independence against uh, such an attack. And uh, we think that there's a, a very significant possibility that the, the Eurozone would break down as a, a coherent uh, 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 monetary space if, if that were uh, to, to happen. So, um, you know, this emphasizes the importance of the Federal Reserve maintaining the credibility of the dollar and the desirability of holding dollars abroad as a long-term store of value. Yes. Bill Klein from Washington, D.C. A question that I'm not sure is relevant to any of you, maybe it's very naive, but I'm curious of all the dollars in the world, how, much of the, how many of them, what percent are outside the United States, and then what would happen if some other currency took over with all those dollars? And, and you, maybe you partly answered that because you talked in terms of debt, but I'm just curious to know how, much, how many of our dollars are not within the United States and being used in the United States. Uh, well, there, is a, there are several answers to that, you know, because one of the, one of the problems, the big problems that, that you have when you have one country playing central banker for the rest of the world in the kind of system that we have today, you know, is that if you issue dollars, if the Federal Reserve issues dollars to people who will use them, let's say in Europe, those dollars are going back to the United States almost immediately. You know, because let's say that uh, uh, there are people, uh, you are importing something from, from uh, Germany, you know, uh, Mercedes-Benz cars, and you pay Mercedes-Benz. And, you know, Mercedes-Benz will deposit this money in the banking system in Europe, and the banking system in Europe will immediately, you know, deposit these dollars back in the United States, where you know, these dollars will be used by the banks to lend money inside the United States. So you have this circle in, 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 that, that comes back to the United States, you know, and this, this is one of the reasons why, for example, back in the early 21st century, in around 1999 through 2000 and, and something, the United States was having a very large fiscal surplus, but still, you know, it had a very large uh, current account deficit in the balance of payments. Because, you know, this was because the, the country was very strong fiscally, but still, you know, whatever dollars were being created were coming back to the United States, and there was a lot of credit being created that, that resulted in the, in the current account uh, deficit. Why? Because people were investing in the United States. And, you know, even in this moment of crisis in the world, you know, when people thought that the dollar would weaken immediately, actually the, the dollar strengthened because of the same reason, you know, because the dollars came back because what people wanted to have the currency invested in the United States. But this is something that cannot last f forever. You know, because if the United States keeps on abusing the privilege of issuing the international currency, what will happen is that these people will start selling these dollars for other currencies, and the dollar will depreciate very, very much, you know, and then you will have an impact on inflation in the United States. 
Well, one of one and of higher our, interest rates. One of our favorite economic figures of the 20th century who comes up repeatedly in the book is the French economist Jacques Rueff, and he was uh, discussing in the 1960s in homey terms why the Bretton Woods international monetary system would have to collapse. And he said, "Well, look at it this way." He said, "If I had an agreement with my with my tailor, whereby." Uh, every time I buy a suit from him, he immediately gives my money back to me in the form of a loan. I would have no, no uh, problem whatsoever with buying more suits from him. And he explained that was the situation that the United States was in in the 1960s and exactly the situation we're in today. We give a dollar to China in return for goods. China immediately hands the dollar back to us in the form of an extremely low interest loan. Uh, that dollar is recycled through the U.S. financial system to create yet more credit. And this was very much behind the, the credit bubble that um, uh, we experienced in the, the early to, to middle years of, of this decade, this uh, constant recycling of dollars uh, 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 from abroad. And we had the same situation in the, the 1920s when inflation was very modest. In fact, the Federal Reserve, which was only created in 1913, was explicitly pursuing a, a policy of uh, price stabilization in the 1920s, and they were very successful at keeping the price level stable. But since there was such enormous downward pressure on prices because of technological advance in the 1920s, the money supply uh, uh, fueled a huge credit boom, which not only uh, infected the stock market, but believe it or not, Florida was uh, the epicenter of the real estate bubble. Uh, in the 1920s. So we're reliving many of the monetary uh, uh, flaws of the uh, 20th century. Ben, your comments lead me to, to a question. We live in this world of fiat currencies. What then, uh, to what do you attribute mainly the current financial uh, crisis? Is it bad monetary policy at the Fed? Is it China? Is it uh, the combination of these factors or other, other factors? You give me a, a chance to uh, advertise uh, another publication of mine, but it's available for free, uh, downloadable on the web from CFR.org called Lessons of the Financial Crisis. Um, uh, I would certainly put um, uh, monetary policy at the, the top of my list. Um, monetary policy was exceptionally uh, loose in the early part of this uh, decade, in particular from 2003 to 2005. Uh, real inflation-adjusted uh, interest rates in the United States were, were negative almost throughout that period of situation that we had not seen since the, the 1970s. So credit was uh, artificially extremely cheap. But there are other factors, other policy factors that were extremely influential in creating the credit bubble that uh, virtually no one's talking about today. The taxation system, for example, uh, both at the household level and at the corporate level. Um, uh, in, uh, households obviously ha are given an enormous uh, incentive uh, uh, to, to borrow through mortgage interest uh, tax deductibility and then to continuously reduce the equity they have in their home through home equity loan interest deductibility. At the corporate level, U.S. Uh, companies face an effective uh, tax rate on equity financed investments of about 36%. For debt-financed investments, the equivalent figure is negative 6% because of a combination of things like uh, interest uh, deductibility and accelerated depreciation. So if you ever wondered why are banks so loath 
to go out and raise equity capital. Why do they prefer debt so much? It's because the taxation system makes debt much, much cheaper uh, uh, than equity. The whole securitization boom, for example, very much fueled by the tax code because if banks held a loan on their book, they required equity capital to support it, which was exceptionally expensive. If they distributed immediately, kept it off balance sheet, with the intention of uh, uh, selling it off, they could avoid those capital uh, uh, charges by distributing it to people who didn't bear the same disadvantages from the uh, uh, taxation system. Thanks. We'll take a question here, please. Hello, François Normand. I'm a reporter from Montreal. Uh, I have a question. Uh, do you think that the yuan, the Chinese currency, could become the most important currency in the future? And what will be the impact on the United States? Um, I, I don't think so, you know, because <clears throat> the, in order to, to have an international currency, uh, you need a, a really a strong economy, extremely diversified economy. Uh, which, you know, if you accept one dollar, you know that you can get almost everything inside the American economy with a dollar. You know, and because of that, you know, everywhere in the world, people will, will uh, uh, accept dollars, which in, in increases, you know, the possibility that your dollar will be accepted by somebody else. So that's... Uh, that's uh, uh, but also, you know, you need... Uh, a, a, and this is what I think is in danger now. You know, you really need uh, a country where the rule of law will protect the acquisitive power of your money also. You know, it has to be a very serious country which will not go into hyperinflation, which will not uh, a, a, in some way debase its own currency. And that, you know, that is the United States up to now. You know, it's, it's a very... A, a, open economy. It's an economy with uh, the rule of law, very good institutions. You can defend your rights. And also, you know, it's a very dynamic uh, economy where you can invest wherever, you know, in any kind. If, if you think that the knowledge economy is the, is the new wave of the future, you invest in the knowledge economy because you have the best universities. If you think it is real estate, you have a lot of real estate. You have everything. You don't have that in China. You know, China is still, you know, it could be a growing economy, and, and, but, but really it is not yet an, an economy. It is not a, a country where you can say, you know, the rule of law is good, you know, in, in, in that, you know, I am safe that they are not going to do something. But now the problem is that, you know, the problem for the entire world is that the United States is losing this reputation and nobody else is coming. You know, so that is the big danger for the globalization and the, and the uh, functioning of the market, money market in the future. Right here. Hi, Steve Fritzinger from Fairfax. I was just wondering, if monetary nationalism is such a recent phenomenon, how has it become such an emotional and passionate issue among true nationalists and, and hyper-nationalists so quickly? We talk in the last chapter of the book about the, the uh, fascinating evolution of the concept of, of sovereignty, how, how the idea of sovereignty has changed so dramatically um, uh, over, over time 
in, in the age of monarchs, of course, uh, uh, sovereignty was embedded uh, in the monarch. Today, the idea of a monarch is absolutely abominable. But it's quite remarkable that the, the term sovereignty still has such a positive glow, despite the fact that what we think of as good sovereignty today is completely different from what we thought of uh, as, as good sovereignty for or, or, or 500 uh, years ago. Um, in terms of why monetary nationalism uh, has developed such um, uh, a positive uh, image with uh, the public, there, there is uh, this mythology that's developed that somehow um, uh, in the 1920s and then, of course, into the 30s, we, we uh, were uh, effectively in a straitjacket that was uh, imposed by the gold standard. In terms of the 1920s, this was absolutely ridiculous. Um, uh, the Federal Reserve, to the extent that it was concerned about the gold standard, was just concerned uh, that their gold stocks were sufficient because, of course, gold was the currency of, uh, of uh, in international transaction. If you didn't have a sufficient stock of, of gold, you couldn't trade with the rest of the world. But beyond that, um, uh, they were not obeying the, the rules of the gold standard, uh, 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 far from it. Under the gold exchange standard, when the U.S. gave a dollar to France, France did not redeem that dollar for gold, thereby reducing the money supply in the United States. Both countries would count the same dollar uh, as part of their gold reserve, so both of them would uh, increase the monetary supply and, and the, the growth of credit. But, of course, in the early 1930s, <coughs> the system started unraveling. There was a big scramble for, for, for gold. Um, and uh, this period, of course, has led to demonization of gold as some sort of terrible uh, uh, straitjacket that stopped us from doing what was necessary. In my view, clearly, given that the system had effectively disintegrated by the early 1930s, there was no sense in any one country trying to maintain it anymore because the international gold standard fundamentally relied on everybody playing by the rules of the game. If no one was willing to see their reserves of gold uh, 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 go down, then the system could no longer have the uh, equilibrating uh, effects that it was uh, supposed to have. Um, so you, when President Nixon took took us off uh, the, the gold exchange standard, the Bretton Woods standard in 1971, it was seen as an effective liberation. Here are these foreigners demanding their, their gold back. If we just stop this ridiculous um, uh, pretext that we will supply the world with gold at a, a fixed exchange rate, we can run our monetary policy to suit our purposes at, at, at any given point. Uh, in time. And I think uh, Paul Volcker's success in defeating inflation and inflation expectations in the 1980s was seen as a sort of vindication that, see, it is possible to run a responsible uh, 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 fiat uh, monetary policy. I think probably there's no one in the world today who's more concerned about where the United States is headed in terms of the future of monetary policy than, than Paul Volcker, so I find that uh, rather ironic. But there, there is this belief that's developed that it's an, the, the natural role of, of the state to produce money and to continually adapt the, the money supply to uh, domestic conditions. There is a... I would like to add something here. You know, there, there is this theme going through the, the, the book, which is uh, what is the source of uh, sovereignty? You know, it is the people or the government? 
you know, are the laws made by somebody in the government who decides you have to behave in this way, or it is because people behave in this way, and then you create the law, you know, to, to, to enforce this. And, and, and this, you know, in, 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 uh, when you discuss sovereignty, what happens is that the, the first, the, the, the one that is linked with the people has been more or less in the modern world associated with the Anglo-Saxon countries, you know, which is the natural law, you know, and, and the precedents. And then this is the way people behave, and because of that, you know, the judges judge on that, you know, and the laws are made. And then there is this French, German, you know, Euro, continental European tradition in which is the state that decides what you should do. Okay, and then sovereignty in the United States in the 1800s, you know, or before, if you remember, the United States was always suspicious even of banks, of central banks, you know, it, it, it stopped the charter of the Bank of the United States, you know, it's, uh, because the, the, they were always suspicious of the bureaucrats or the politicians who would create something, you know. They said, well, we prefer the, the market, and then, you know, the gold standard was part of the same kind of thing. You know, this gold is a currency that the value of which is given by the market, not by a politician. But then for some reason, you know, since during the 20th century, the continental European idea that the law comes from the state, not from the people, has advanced even in the United States. And then it has become natural. You know, that the value of money is not given by the market, it's given by the Fed. And, you know, but, you know, then the episodes like the one that we are living today are going to make think people again, I think, about who is the sovereign. When you say we want to have a sovereign currency, sovereign is Bernanke or the people, you know, and that's, that's the, the point. So that brings me to uh, my next question, which is what policy recommendations, if any, do you uh, Put into the book. Uh, policy recommendations in, 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 in what? You know, because we have so many things around. You know, when, you know I would say, well, it, it, now, you know, there is a lot of discussion about regulation, for example, you know, which is how to close the door, but the, 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 the horses are out already. Okay, we will have to come back to that. But now, what are we going to do? What I, I can say is that Really, you know, if you look at what is the problem we are facing, you know, if you have somebody who has drank a lot of whiskey last night, are you going to give him even more whiskey today? You know, and that that is that is what we are doing now. What we have had is too low interest rates and too much of uh, monetary creation during the last few years, and then we have even more monetary creation because we are. I, I think that this is the interpretation I would call the interpretation of the one-dimensional world in which you have only one commodity, you know, and if demand goes down, it's because that commodity is going down and then you have to create money to create more demand for that. But really, if you look at what is going on, there is a huge shift in relative prices that has taken place, you know. First, you had a tremendous increase in the relative prices of assets, Okay, houses, shares, and also commodities, which are taken as assets. And then these came down, creating tremendous losses. And these losses already happened. Okay, if you 
built a house in the desert of Arizona, thinking that the people who are buying their fifth home were going to buy this. And then, you know, these people have discovered they don't have the money to buy the fifth house, not even the second or third. They will have to sell the other houses they have and maybe keep one. You know, that, the value of that house has come down. And that value is, is gone forever. It really never existed. You know, people thought that this was very valuable. And now, in this moment, it is not valuable. Okay, now you have to take those losses. And this is what happened during the big crisis in the uh, 19th century. You know, they were horrible. They were catastrophic because everybody, you know, lost money immediately. You know, the bad projects went bankrupt. Okay, and then after that, you knew that the that the bill the businesses that remained in place were good, and then the banks started financing the good businesses, and then you could have the economic recovery. But now the problem was that, you know, not just the bad businesses, but also many good businesses went down during the panics of the 18th century. But the recovery was very fast. Now, you know, this process of allocation of resources, of the losses, you know, because actually it is the allocation of the losses. Who is going to lose about this Arizona desert house? In the 18th century, 19th century, it was an immediate decision. The market decided you lose. And who were the losers? Were the shareholders of the banks, you know, and if the shareholders of the banks were, were not enough, then the depositors and so on, okay? And it was very clear who would lose the money, and it, they lost the money very, very quickly. In this moment, you know, nobody wants to take the loss for the house in Arizona, and, you know, since the government has been, it is no longer a political, it is no longer an economic process. It is a political process. You know, this is who is more powerful to avoid taking the losses. And this is stopping the economy, you know. And it will stop the economy as long as the allocation of the losses are not taken care of. So, you know, I don't think that we should go back to the 18th, 19th century. You know, but we should have a very, very rapid process to allocate the, 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 the losses according to common sense. First, the shareholders, you know, and then, you know, the other people. If you want to protect the depositors, okay, take the depositors with a, a bailout, the depositors with a, the, the, the money from the, the, the government, but bail them out only after the shareholders have taken their losses, you know. And this... You know, so I think that now the, the, what is really important is to accelerate the process of allocating the losses so that, you know, everything becomes clear and the survivors are good and fine. And then, you know, you will see that the economic recovery will take place. Uh, you, you ask about the uh, policy recommendations in, in the book. Uh, the first thing uh, we, we would res respond is uh, by referring to the old joke about asking the Irishman for the road to Dublin. Uh, if I were you, I wouldn't start from here. Uh, and we do talk about what alternative uh, monetary systems could look like. Uh, for example, we talk about what a private-based digital gold uh, money system uh, could look like. There are, in fact, private gold banks that are in existence today where you can buy uh, digital representations of, of real gold that's held in a vault. 
uh, and you can do international transactions with other people that uh, hold accounts. So you can use gold as a, a, a currency. There's no reason why if uh, a system like that became uh, popular that these banks couldn't issue smart cards and you could go into a cafe in Sao Paulo and order your cappuccino and pay with a flake of gold because chances are that in uh, Sao Paulo, the cafe owner considers gold a reliable uh, store of value. So it would be possible to develop uh, a monetary regime based on gold or another commodity that's uh, private-based. Having said that, there is this nasty dialectic throughout history that uh, commodity monies are always nationalized. Um, After they're nationalized, they tend to turn into fiat currencies. Uh, one of those fiat currencies tends to emerge as the international um, uh, transaction vehicle, and that um, uh, international currency, that national currency that works as the international currency, always teeters back and forth under the weight of what's called the Triffin Dilemma, which the central bank governor in, in China uh, referred to. Uh, this notion that when uh, one country is producing the international currency, there will always be one of two problems. Uh, first of all, if, uh, if that country does not run continuous current account deficits in order to, to supply the world with the, the money it wants, the dollars, uh, for example, there will be a liquidity shortage in the world. But eventually those uh, current account deficit, deficits will accumulate at such a level that the foreigners will lose confidence um, in, in the currency, and then it could collapse. And in fact, in 2007 and 2008, we swung violently from one end of the Triffin Dilemma to an, another. If you remember, we were all uh, terribly concerned at the beginning of uh, 2008 with the possibility that the, the, the dollar was, um, uh, was going to collapse. The Chinese were vociferous uh, uh, about our irresponsible monetary policy. And then when the crisis uh, uh, broke into its most virulent phase, um, uh, particularly in September of 2008, suddenly there was a global scramble for dollars. And in December of last year, we faced this bizarre situation where sh- uh, three-month treasuries actually dropped to a yield below 0%, meaning that um, uh, you actually had to pay the U.S. government for the privilege of lending to it. Very bizarre situation. So we are moving rapidly from one Paul to Triffin dilemma to another. Uh, having said that, we are where we are. So we, we do believe that the Federal Reserve uh, could do a better job than it's doing now. Um, and i just make a few comments in this regard. Um, I, I edit a, um, a scholarly um, uh, economics journal called International Finance. And most of the submissions that uh, come in uh, in the area of monetary policy are some variation on um, uh, how to operate good inflation targeting. Inflation targeting has become the orthodoxy for uh, uh, monetary policy. But there was never any guarantee uh, uh, that um, targeting a a low, positive, relatively stable rate of uh, inflation as defined according to to some index would produce good good money. Um, As as Hayek uh, argued, good money is a neutral money. It's not necessarily one for which prices are, are, are stable. As I said, we had stable prices during the 1920s, and we still had a massive uh, credit boom. So uh, I certainly believe that the Federal Reserve has to pay attention 
to um, uh, credit metrics, various credit metrics. This is different from targeting specific asset price bubbles. It's not a matter of uh, the Federal Reserve saying, we think a, a Dow of 9,000 is, is, is too high, so we're going to raise uh, interest rates. Um, that's focusing on the, the trees and ignoring the forest. Um, the uh, growth in asset prices in the early to middle part of this decade uh, was so pervasive across asset uh, classes. The growth of credit was um, uh, so enormous across asset prices that it should have been absolutely clear that something was uh, fundamentally remiss. Uh, Alan Greenspan always claimed to have been a, a believer in the monetary role of gold. Well, the gold price was soaring in the early price in the early years of this decade, and he paid no attention to it. So it's clear that he didn't really uh, believe it, and perhaps became so enamored of his own uh, powers uh, to um, uh, convince. Uh, the world that prices would always remain stable and financial markets would always remain uh, stable, that he was led to ig ignore these uh, signals from the international marketplace that U.S. monetary policy had gotten out of kilter. Thanks. We have time for one more question. If anybody has a question. Oh, well, then we'll call it an end. Thanks very much for joining us, and please uh, thank our speakers today. Thank you.